0: Good morning. My name is Dan, and uh, for the next two weeks, I'm going to be walking with you through four chapters of Isaiah, uh, starting with chapter 15 and 16 this morning. Turn there with me. Isaiah chapters 15 and 16. As we were reminded last week, God's wrath is terrifying. We saw God through the prophet Isaiah... Bring down a terrifying prophecy on Babylon. And we saw some really dark imagery. As Tom said, it's, it's easy to kind of sidestep or outright avoid stuff like that. To think that God is, is either is full of wrath and so we just only talk about grace. But God is perfectly both. And I think in this week's text, God in his kindness is going to remind us of the other side of the coin. As we saw wrath last week, I think we're going to perhaps see grace a little bit more clearly as we look at the second nation to receive a prophecy. This is the nation of Moab. But we're not going to lose wrath in the process. So here's my proposal of what's happening. Today in this text. The end goal. Of God's wrath. And his grace. Is a global people. Unified around God's throne. If you're not a Christian. I'll say it a different way. The only way to world peace. Is through God's plan. How I'm going to get to that. Is your outline. First. Great will be the fall of God's enemies. Second. Greater will be the mercy of God's chosen king. And I'll end with some clarity on how God's people were to apply this during the time of Isaiah as they waited, and what that means for us as we wait. I'm going to begin by reading chapter 15, and, and one more thought before I begin. As Tom said last week about Babylon, you will also not meet people from the country of Moab, it is gone. In fact, I was getting some time with uh, John Walker a couple weeks ago, and he serves in the nursery and said, you know, I haven't been catching all the sermons. I don't know anything about Moab. And I'm thinking, that's the point. That is the point. You should not know much about Moab, but we're going to learn about them today. Here's how they fell. It's point one. I'm going to read the first nine verses in chapter 15. Because Ar of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. Because Kir of Moab is laid waste in the night, Moab is undone. He has gone up to the temple and to Dibbon, to the high places to weep. Over Nebo and over Mediba, Moab wails. On every head is baldness, every beard is shorn. In the streets they wear sackcloth. And on the housetops and in the squares, everyone wails. And melts in tears. Heshbon and Eliela cry out, their voice is heard as far as Jahaz. Therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles. My heart cries out for Moab. Her fugitives flee to Zohar, to Eglath Shalishia. In the ascent of Luhith they go up weeping on the road to Horonim. They raise a cry of destruction. The waters of Nimrim are a desolation. The grass is withered. The vegetation fails. The greenery is no more. Therefore, the abundance they have gained and what they have laid up, they carry away over the brook of the willows. For a cry has gone around the land of Moab. Her wailing reaches to Eglane. Her wailing reaches to beer The waters of Dibbon are full of blood. For I will bring upon Gibbon even more a lion for those of Moab who escape for the remnant of the land. As the way that this text hits you, let me first tell you about the Moabites so that you can understand how Israel would have read this. Back in the book of Genesis, there was a man named Lot that some of you are familiar with if you grew up in church. He had an incestuous relationship with his daughters. The eldest daughter gave birth and named her firstborn son Moab. From him, a people group was formed, and they did not have regard for God. And so the prophecy of Moab's destruction, it didn't begin in the verses I just read. They began with Moses way back in Exodus 15. The song of Moses after Israel is freed from Egypt and crossed the Red Sea, where he said this, Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed, trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. And the song continues in Deuteronomy chapter 23. Moab at this point smells so terrible to God in what they do that God cuts them off in a very specific way. Where it said, no Moabite will ever enter the assembly of the Lord. Even to the 10th generation, none of them may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. And the rift continued. Moab performed some of the first recorded cases of human sacrifice in the name of advancement. The most horrifying example of this came about a hundred years before the time of Isaiah. Israel was storming the Moabite castle capital and the Moabite king, in a desperate attempt to salvage victory, climbs up to the highest point and sacrifices his oldest son to their God. And this is the very son who would have succeeded him as king. Talk about not playing the long game. Here's all I'm saying. This oracle against Moab and Isaiah, this is not a cobbled together political move. This is a death song that has been building for 1,500 years. And so Israel, hearing just this short sentence in Isaiah about Moab's destruction, would be salivating. They've been waiting for this for a long time. Just look at the first verse. It's a sudden downfall. Two of the largest strongholds were R and here, And they get laid waste in one night. It's like your capitals going down. This is swift. And later in this text, we're going to see that this is coming in just a few years. Secondly, it's not just sudden, but it's a tragic downfall. These are the next eight verses, and so I'm just going to draw your attention to a few things that we see in them. First, we see the people themselves withering. In verse 2, we see the country as a whole weeping. The word he that you read in verse 2, that's a personification for the entire country. In verse 3, the destitute people weep. Heads are shaved as a sign of mourning and distress. And the people are wearing sackcloth, which is what you do when people die. In verse 4, the strong people weep. These are armed men, probably the best, probably the elite soldiers. What we notice in verse 5 is that God himself is crying out. And that's strange. And as you consider that for a minute, just tuck it in because I'm going to elaborate on that a bit later. So the people are withering, but beyond that, the land is withering. In verse 6, the water dries up. The vegetation dies. In verse 7, their stored abundance and crops is no more. So it's not just that their immediate food source is gone. Their reserves are gone too. And in verse 8, what little water is left is stained with blood, which means there's been a lot of human death. And perhaps the most stirring visual is that at the end of all of that, God sends a lion for those who remain. And I do not know if this is a literal lion. But I'm going to add a little more history here so that we can continue to understand historically what's going on. This destruction would happen suddenly and soon, and though we don't know exactly who delivered the final blow to Moab, many commentators and historians credit the Persian dynasty for at least the first wave of destruction. Ar and Kir go down, first wave. And after that, Moab would gradually be wiped from the history books. Its cities and towns just picked off piece by piece by various Arabian tribes. And the last gasp would come about a 100 years after Isaiah when the song against Moab seems to conclude in Jeremiah 48. You can write that down if you'd like to read more. Jeremiah 48 is an even more expanded version of this song against Moab. It's kind of like the final verse of the song, you might think. So all I'm saying is God's people are really eager for this to happen. But just to clarify, at the time of this writing of Isaiah, though the proclamation is building as it has been, and the people are salivating, Moab is still standing. So you can imagine the tension. When's it going to happen? Which is what makes the next chapter so shocking. Point two. Greater will be the mercy of God's chosen king. You're going to read the first five verses. Consider the tension, the shift of tension that happens. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah by way of the desert to the mount of the daughter of Zion, like fleeing birds, like a scattered nest. So are the daughters of Moab at the fords of the Arnab. Give counsel. Grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcasts. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab sojourn among you. Be a shelter to them from the destroyer. When the oppressor is no more and the destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land, then a throne will be established in steadfast love, and on it will sit in faithfulness. In the tent of David, one who judges and seeks justice and is swift to do righteousness. Did you hear the record skip? Look at verse 1. Might be a little confusing some of the imagery, but I want to show you how strange this might seem. Verse 1 there's a lamb sent in tribute to Zion, which is God's land, God's mountain. Just for the sake of context, historically this was a tradition. When you lost, you would send a lamb of peace to the victim. It's like raising a white flag. Or handing over your gun, as a general would do to another general. But remember, God is still the one speaking here. As he was before, saying, I weep. So what's actually happening is that God is sending a lamb on behalf of Moab, not to Israel, but to himself. Did you catch that? So it's not that, it's not that Moab is taking a lamb and sending it to Israel. They don't have any lambs. They're done. God is sending a lamb on behalf of Moab to his own mountain. So there's a bigger picture being painted and it likely would have confused and even probably angered the Israelite reader. Look at what's being offered to the losers. Look at what Moab gets. There's counsel and justice and and a place at the table among God's people for a remnant of Moab In other words, some of them not only live, but they get brought in. Remember Tom's illustration last week about how it would be so shocking to hear a story of a family sitting around and then soldiers bursting through the door and shooting the father. Remember how shocking that sounded? But then Tom says, oh, well, what if that's Osama bin Laden? And the soldiers are U.S. soldiers. I bet your your view of that situation changes. That's something you've been hoping for for a while. So what this is right here, this is like after that happens, a few of Osama's followers tied up with ISIS. They flee the country. And now they're coming to this church for a picnic. How do you feel about that? You going to come? You going to leave your kids at home? This would stun Israel. You know who would be even more stunned reading this? A Moabite. Remember the quote from Deuteronomy? Because i got to go back there. No Moabite may enter the assembly of the Lord forever. Why are they allowed in now? I grappled with this verse. I almost kind of, in my heart of hearts, wished I hadn't found it. Me ducking the hard words of the Bible. Praise God, I didn't do that. Because this verse in Deuteronomy seems to make the whole thing fall apart. These are, these are the verses that people that haven't understood the whole Bible will take you to, to say, look, the Bible's full of holes. This is one of them. But it's not a hole. Because it hit me. Do you know why the Lord would let Moabites in? Not because he's forgetful. It's because Moab is gone. There aren't any Moabites left. You get it? You're not a Moabite. You can't get in because you have no country. You have no home. And so God, what he's doing, is he's removing their cultural identity completely. And then he spares some, and then he gives them a new identity, and he welcomes them home. A new nation led by a new king who would be perfecting justice and counsel and steadfast Love, or as we see in verse 5, Moab, with nothing to offer, will have God himself make the payment, the tribute of the Lamb of Peace. And from this, God sings Moab a new song, one of life and not death. This is where my proposal kind of pushes forward. And I want to talk about the whole biblical narrative. The end goal of God's wrath and grace is a global people unified around God's throne. Or again, I say, if you're non christian this is the way to world peace. All throughout Scripture, don't we see kings die and countries, even Israel, fall by God's decree? But God is pushing his plan forward. And here's how that applies not to Moab, but to Israel. A little more biblical history. On the heart level, how much better is Israel than Moab at this point in history? Israel has proven to be just as opposed to God. You don't even have to leave Isaiah to see that. Just go back to the first 12 chapters and you'll see their resume. But just like Moab, it goes back even further. One example is from the book of Judges, chapter 3. Write that down if you'd like. God turns Israel over in defeat to the Moabites for worshiping false gods. And Israel cries out, Deliver us! God says, Okay, and he does. But then to seven chapters later in Judges 10, we find out that Israel, given peace by God, is now worshiping the gods of Moab. And Israel never quite recovers from this. Here's why I point this out. God's people, who are likely confused and infuriated by this redemptive plan laid out by God throughout the Old Testament, has one chief complaint. Why are you saving your enemies? And why are you giving them a place at our table? And the answer to that question is, it's not your table. No one deserves to be at that table. That's the point of God's mercy. All throughout the Bible. Only God can offer the Lamb of peace. And if you've been going to church for more than 10 minutes, you probably know where I'm going with that imagery. God would literally do that. And I don't think it's a stretch. If you're a Moabite... And you've heard legends of their people's love for human sacrifice, especially that Moabite king who vainly sacrifices his son. I think a Moabite refugee would be stunned to then hear a story about the the God of Israel who sacrificed his own son, and it was enough for the first and only time in history it would be enough. God's wrath brought on Jesus was the price for the grace that gives everyone a seat at God's table. God's wrath brought on Jesus was the price for the grace that gives us all a seat at God's table. And so the implication from all this to the original audience, Israel, is this. Get ready to meet God's enemies at the altar of mercy. There's a new king in town. And Israel would have to wait for this day to play out. But it all played out. In the meantime, God would go on right here in Isaiah to actually give Israel the clarity on how to stay sober as they waited and got ready for this great unfolding. That's your third point. How to stay sober, be horrified by opposition to the king. This is verses 6 through 11 in chapter 16. This might sound like more bad news after a bunch of good news, but bear with me. Start in verse 6. We've heard of the pride of Moab. How proud he is of his arrogance, his pride, his insolence, and his idle boasting. He is not right. Therefore let Moab wail for Moab. Let everyone wail, mourn, utterly stricken, for the raisin cakes of Kir for the fields of Heshbon languish, and the vine of Sibmah. The Lord of the nations have struck down its branches, which reached to Jazer and strayed to the desert, its shoots spread abroad and passed over the sea. Therefore I weep with the weeping of Jazer for the vine of Sibmah. I drench you with my tears. O Heshbon, Eliela, for over your summer fruit and your harvest the shout has ceased. As joy and gladness are taken away from the fruitful field and in the vineyards no songs are sung, no cheers are raised, no treader treads out wine in the presses, I have put an end to the shouting. Therefore my inner parts moan. My inner parts moan like a liar for Moab, and my inmost self for Kir Harishim. And when Moab presents himself, when he wearies himself on the high place, when he comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. This is the word that the Lord spoke concerning Moab in the past. But now the Lord has spoken, saying, In three years, of the years of a hard worker, all the glory of Moab will be brought into contempt in spite of all his great multitude. And those who remain will be very few and feeble. In a way, it makes sense that God Himself here is the chief mourner at the Moabite funeral. There's hope on the horizon, but it's not here yet. Gotta wait a little longer. So many people are suffering in vain. Opposed to God with hard hearts. They still keep trying to pray to their gods, and it's not working. And they don't know it, and they won't accept it. They're not sober. Look at verse 6. Arrogance, pride, insolence. In the context of biblical history, they have been trying for 1,500 years to do it their way. And it's still not working. And it won't. So verse 7 is the outcome. They just wail. Everyone is wailing. And in verse 8, they have no branches. That's how their story, historically speaking, ends. Apart from these refugees what's so striking is God's response God weeps verse 9 God's tears are literally the only water in a dry land verse 10 there's no singing in Moab In verse 11 God's heart grieves as he watches the funeral that he has prepared and again if you don't know who God is This sounds bipolar. It really does. Who weeps and punishes? Don't you just stop punishing, right? Don't you just quit after a while? Why not cut him some slack? But, I think most of us know the answer to that. We just don't like it. Parents, when you discipline your children, don't you weep? Especially when they just keep doing the wrong thing. Students, what about when you offer the gospel to a freshman and they turn you down? You weep. You know, you know what their goals get them. You long for them to trust in the Lord. Here's my point. Weeping for the lost, and yet accepting God's wrath, that's not crazy. That's what it looks like to be sober. Because that's what Jesus looked like. He was rejected. And what was his response? Forgiving them on the cross. Looking out on the nations. That all in a unified front. Called for his crucifixion. And him having pity. And all I mean by that is. There's real pain in sobriety. Because what happens when you get drunk? You don't feel anything. So if you feel a lot of stuff. That could be good. Not a bad thing. Don't go numb. Because though this new kingdom is offered, many will not enter. And a big pile of those is what we read in chapter 16. And for those who reject it, the sword will fall, as it does in verses 12 and 13. Moab will be destroyed. God's sadness does not negate Justice. In the same way, the godly parent will not neglect to discipline his or her child, even though it's hard. And likewise, the student hopefully will not soften the gospel and kind of round the corners, but present it fully and continue to endure no matter how many times they're rejected. Here's the payoff when we do it that way God's enemies from everywhere get to be at one table, but only if we preach the gospel. It's this reality that helps us stay sober, to be horrified at opposition to the king, but yet to still serve the king, to not get so distracted by the suffering. That we forget the God above all of it. I'm going to close with some practical applications for your continued sobriety. First, if you're a Christian. Preach Christ crucified as the way to peace and unity. Do not settle for less. I said this the last time I was up here and it's still true because Isaiah is kind of repetitive. Have neighbors for meals, and throw parties, and plant a community garden if you want to. Have an Indian cultural night, But, you have not shared the gospel until you have shared the gospel. For Moab, it wasn't simply about being welcomed into prosperity. It was the fact that they had a new king. And they have exactly one hope. That king. Otherwise, you're dead. Nothing changes. Same story today. Second, be humble as you prepare for Jesus. How about you go, I'm tempted when people oppose the gospel to just kind of mock people. I don't weep for them. I tend to mock them. What I need to do And if you're like me, is to remember God's heart, weeping at the effects of sin. And from that, be horrified at the pride that would cause me to say such a thing, or even think such a thing. Here's why I say that. I'm just like God's enemies in that I had no lamb to offer God. It was all by the blood of Jesus for me and for them. A funny thing happens when we know that everyone is a refugee. Third, and I think this maybe comes from that last sentence, welcome God's enemies to the altar of mercy. We might get bigger. Fall semester kicks in. See new families all the time. What happens if we get people from every nation? We're going to bump elbows a little bit, maybe some different preferences. We might stop singing your favorite songs. You okay with that? We might not be able to buy donuts anymore. might have too many people. You okay with that? We might even have to go to two services for a little while. You okay with that? Here's the question behind the question. Do you really want this place filled up? That's the price of growth. Because there's a lot of enemies, but there's a lot of grace. And I'll just close with two short applications for the non-Christian. First, know that global peace is impossible apart from the gospel. There's a reason. Try to attain world peace And removing all facets of not just God but any religion falls short. Look at the genocides of the 20th century. Really dig into your history books. That's what happens when people try to do unity without the God who made unity possible. Second, especially if you've been kind of pricked by any of this text, remember that no enemy of God is beyond redemption. In other words, you don't need to clean up yourself and get your sins together in order to be a Christian. Sounds kind of elementary, but I think it needs to be said. You can't. God offers the full payment. I'm going to close with the opening lyrics to our final song, which is a picture of the global church brought together by God. Oh, how good it is when the family of God dwells together in spirit, faith, and in unity. where the bonds of peace, of acceptance, and love are the fruit of his presence here among us. Let's pray. God, we love your wrath until it's pointed at us. And then we cry out for grace. Lord, you are the God of perfect wrath and perfect grace. You love justice. And you love mercy. And it's because of that, that you satisfied, you satisfied justice by aiming at your son on the cross and not at any of us who so deserved it. Lord, help that to motivate us to share the good news of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the life everlasting. Amen.